afternoon and welcome to a special edition of the Tennessee World Affairs Council's Global Dialogue. I'm your host, Patrick Ryan. We're pleased to present this conversation in our series, In Focus, Russia's Invasion of Ukraine. We began the series in January last year as war clouds in Europe were on the horizon. And the World Affairs Council has brought you monthly updates from distinguished American diplomats, Ukrainian officials and specialists from Europe and the United States. You can find these videos, podcasts, and transcripts and more at our website, tnwac.org. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Ms. Liz Zentos. She's Deputy Director of the Office of Russian Affairs at the U.S. State Department. We'll be talking about the state of the U.S.-Russian relationship in the wake of Moscow's unprovoked brutal attack on Ukraine 14 months ago. From 2020 to 2021, Liz served as the Deputy Political Counselor at U.S. Embassy Kabul, Prior to that, she served as political and economic affairs chief at U.S. Embassy Tbilisi, Georgia from 2018 to 2020, and as external affairs chief at U.S. Embassy Moscow from 2017 to 2018, when the Russian government declared her persona non grata. From 2015 to 2016, Liz served as the director for Eastern Europe at the U.S. National Security Council, where she covered Ukraine, Moldova, Belarus, and the OSCE. From 2014, excuse me, from 2012 to 2014, she served as political military chief at U.S. Embassy Kyiv, where she covered Ukraine's Maidan revolution, Russia's attempted annexation of Crimea, and Russia's first invasion of eastern Ukraine. She previously served as special assistant to the Undersecretary for International Security and Arms Control, Ukraine desk officer, and information officer in Yerevan, Armenia. Liz speaks Russian and has a bachelor's degree in international affairs from George Washington University. She was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, and she comes to us today from the U.S. State Department in Washington. Thank you, Liz, for taking time from your busy schedule. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. It's an honor to be here today. Um, Really want to thank you for for reaching out and putting this all together. I also want to thank my colleague, Omar Cardenti, who was on the line, who um, did all of the work to set this up and and help me get ready. So um, should I go ahead and and start? uh, Yeah, let me also thank uh, uh, Omar and and, uh, Bethany and and the terrific staff, uh, the public affairs staff at the the State Department. Uh, We really uh, appreciate uh, everyone's efforts in bringing uh, the view from uh, Foggy Bottom on, on the, these important issues. Uh, Liz, you've had an extraordinary career focused uh, on Russia, serving in Moscow and countries affected by the reach of the Russian Federation, as well as important related assignments at home. Uh, can you set the scene for us uh, for our conversation about the, the relationship and the implications uh, for U.S. interests? Yes, definitely. Happy to. Um, so uh, first, Actually, before we go into it, I'll just say uh, I have been a, a lifelong um, fan of World Affairs Councils in general. Just wanted to mention, you know, I grew up in Cleveland. My father uh, was a, a very active participant in Cleveland World Affairs Councils events, and I grew up hearing about those and uh, really contributed to my interest in foreign affairs. And and then I went on to do this as as my career. So so thank you for what you all do. Um, So starting the scene, actually, I guess I'll just go back to, um, it was the summer of 2021, so about a year and a half ago, 
when I started back here in the State Department as the deputy director of the Russia desk. Uh, I had just uh, left Afghanistan a couple weeks earlier, uh, and it was actually about the time when the Taliban was, was taking Kabul. Um, so I started here on the Russia desk, and it wasn't long after I started that we began to see signs that Russia was planning this war. And we began to see uh, a buildup of forces and material. We also began to see indications, both in public statements and non-public statements, um, of Russia's intentions. And um, it was really that period then in the run-up to February of 2022 um, that, to be honest, for me, was the most intense. Um, because that's when we we started to realize that Russia really planned to invade a neighboring country full on. Um, Russia, of course, had already in 2014 uh, invaded part of eastern Ukraine and had taken a chunk of it. But we could tell that this, this was going to be different. And um, so we spent those months in advance of the war trying everything possible to find a way to prevent the war, to try to convince Russia not to invade. Um, we also focused on um, talking to allies and partners and sharing what we knew with them and getting them on board with our approach to help Ukraine be ready for what Russia was planning to do and to uh, try to convince the Russians somehow not to do it. Um, of course, we didn't succeed in persuading the Russians not to invade. But I will say, you know, I think we really did make a big difference in um, establishing a really productive relationship, especially with allies and partners and thinking through how we would respond if Russia did it. And we were ready this time. Yeah, I worked on these issues back in 2014 when Russia took uh, Crimea and first invaded eastern Ukraine. And we did not believe they were going to do it then. And we were not as prepared. Um, so at least this time we were more prepared. Um, you know, and I, I still think about, was there any way we could have convinced Russia, Putin not to do it? Um, I'm convinced there's not. Um, you know, I think Putin has been intent on controlling Ukraine for a long time now. Um, I think he sees Ukraine as essential to him maintaining his own power in Russia. Uh, you know, successful pro-Western democratic Ukraine on its border, he sees as a threat. He sees the Russian people, you know, looking over there and seeing a Ukraine that where people have more of a say and can go on the streets and and protest and demonstrate for what they want. And he he fears that spilling over into Russia. So he's he's been intent on Ukraine being controlled by Russia, in my view, um, you know, since he's taken power. And, and we've seen that uh, we've seen that repeatedly. You know, I think he also, of course, um, he sees this in my view, as a way to get retribution for what he sees as the not right breakup of the Soviet Union. Uh, he stated publicly, of course, that um, he sees the fall of the Soviet Union as the largest historical tragedy. And so, I, you know, I get the sense he has felt um, Russia has been wronged for all of these years by the West, and this is his way um, to make up for that. Um, so, um, you know, as I said, I think, you know, my view is that Putin has been working towards this for a long time. The 
clearest example, as I mentioned, was 2014 when he first invaded Eastern Ukraine. Um, so why did he do that? And then why did he stop for a while? Um, I think, you know, his goal was always to uh, undermine the pro-Western Ukrainian government. He thought that taking Crimea and invading part of Eastern Ukraine would be enough, in my view, to um, to undermine the pro-Western government and for a pro-Russian government to be able to come in in Ukraine. Um, but I think he realized eight years later that that wasn't happening. Uh, his plan was was not working. And in fact, Ukrainians were becoming uh, more anti-Russia and more pro-Western. And so that's that's when he decided um, to, to engage in this full-scale invasion. Um, but if I could just, you know, pull out, um, pull out and just speak a couple minutes a little more broadly about what this all means. Um, you know, I just want to emphasize that while we talk about Russia's war against Ukraine, this is and this is a broader issue. This is it isn't just about Ukraine. Um, it's about one country's attempt to undermine the global rules-based order, and that affects all of us and all of our security, including U.S. security. Um, through his more than 12 months of full-scale war against Ukraine, Putin has attempted to wreak havoc on European security, redraw the borders of a sovereign nation by force, disrupt the international rules-based order, and devastate the lives of, of millions of people. Um, and so when we're, when we're thinking about this situation, I think it's important to pull back and think about how, you know, if Russia were to be allowed to succeed, uh, in this in this war, um, that would show the world that countries can take parts of other countries by force, um, and you know that countries, governments, and individuals would not be held responsible for for war crimes and crimes against humanity. And so, um, you know, I think when we are considering this conflict, we have to think more broadly about the global implications, and that's very important. Um, I will I will just speak a little bit longer um, and then turn it over to questions. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the way forward, um, the way ahead. So I mean, the good news here is that Russia did not take Kiev in three days, as many people thought it would. Right? Um, Putin failed at his primary objective of subjugating Ukraine. Um, and he will continue to fail because of Ukraine's strong resistance and a unified worldwide response to Russia's aggression. Um, you know, I think that the training and the assistance that we started giving Ukraine after Russia's 2014 invasion um, has made the world of difference. And of course, Ukrainians continue to inspire us with their bravery and their courage. Um, and they continue to defy all expectations in beating back the Russians. So most important moving forward, I would say, is um, maintaining our resolve and support for Ukraine and our commitment to undermining Russia's war machine. Um, and uh, so since the beginning of the war, our goal has been to give Ukraine the means to resist Moscow's aggression, defend its sovereignty and territorial integrity, and be in the strongest possible position at the negotiating table. And so those continue to be our goals that we're working towards here. Um, to achieve this, we are focused not, you know, we are focused on helping Ukraine survive and defend itself, uh, but also on pressuring and imposing costs on Russia uh, so that its leadership 
realizes at some point that the only viable solution for it is to end this war. Um, and so, you know, basically, if I had to name sort of the four areas that we're most focused on here in achieving these goals, I would say it's assisting Ukraine, you know, both its military and economically. Um, it's using um, sanctions and other economic means to hurt Russia's ability to wage this war. Um, it's isolating Russia so that it sees um, that it is not being accepted into the international community and so that it feels that pressure. And it's holding Russia accountable, accountable for its war crimes, accountable for its aggression, um, so that we make clear that governments cannot engage in such behavior and, and get away with it. Um, so in conclusion, I would just emphasize, you know, Vladimir Putin and his government began this war and they can choose to stop it at any time. And so, you know, our goal here is to, um, to pressure Russia and to also offer, um, you know, opportunities for communication um, until Russia understands that ending this war is in its interest. Um, and so, you know, this is really, you know, I've worked on this part of the world for 20 years now. Um, in my view, this, this will be, you know, a defining moment and challenge for the international uh, world order and for our own security. Um, and so uh, most important is to band together and persevere. Uh, we're already, you know, doing that with our allies and partners. Um, and so I think it's really critical that we keep the focus on what's happening, um, not let Ukraine fatigue set in. Um, the fight will be long, um, but I think this will really define the foundation of our future security. Um, and as long as we maintain our commitment and our focus, um, you know, I think um, that we will we will persevere and and the goal again the overall goal is to ensure Russia's war against Ukraine is a strategic failure for the Kremlin, uh, so that we don't see this happen again. Um, so let me let me leave it there for now and happy to talk about all sorts of things. Great, uh, thanks, Liz. That's uh, a great uh, summary of uh, how we got from where we were in the summer of. 2021, I'm sure that uh, you've uh, earned your overtime uh, with uh, preparations and, and how to react uh, when the invasion came. What, uh, what were the uh, U.S. policy goals uh, in dealing with Russia since the uh, unprovoked invasion and, and what's been achieved? Uh, you, you talked about uh, the four uh, foundational approaches to, to dealing with this, but uh, were there specific uh, policy um, tools and, and steps that that uh, your preparation uh, put in place? Yeah, I mean, the overarching one, I guess, is obvious. It's it's to help, you know, to ensure Ukraine remains sovereign and independent when it, within its internationally recognized borders. That's that is the main goal. Um, and so we continue to to focus on that. Uh, and our, I think our assistance for Ukraine is the main vehicle. Um, but also, you know, we can't forget about our policy towards Russia because we can give Ukraine assistance all day long. Um, but our goal is also to have Russia recognize that it's in its interest uh, to end the war. Um, and while we've been doing all that, of course, we, you know, let me mention that we've also looked to uh, maintain communication, lines of communication with the Russians. Um, 
you know, we work hard every day to maintain our embassy in Moscow to ensure that it's able to remain uh, working despite um, some very serious visa challenges with the Russians and where the, the Russians haven't allowed us to get our people out to Embassy Moscow and, and um, have forced us to um, let go our Russian local staff. Um, so we, we are very committed to maintaining lines of communication with the Russian government and also with the Russian people. Um, you know, we continue to look for ways to get our messaging into Russia so that Russians can access um, you know, independent information about what US government goals and policies are. We continue to make clear that our um, our enemy is not the Russian people. Um, you know, we we want to have a productive uh, relationship, uh, positive relationship with the Russian people. We want the Russian government to give them access uh, to true and unbiased information. Um, and so we also continue to work on those lines of effort. We're we're also working hard to, um, you know, keep up communication with Russia, Russian um, civil society folks with. Uh, Russian independent journalists um, so that we continue our support uh, to those folks who, who are working for, um, you know, freedom and independence um, within Russia. Can you talk a little bit about the, uh, the state of the uh, relationship? There's uh, some of us old enough to remember the dark days of the uh, US-Soviet confrontation. Uh, you know, we kind of see this, seen this uh, play before. Uh, how do you and your colleagues uh, think about and, and characterize the current situation? Uh, is this a new Cold War or is it something different? I mean, there are certainly echoes of, of what transpired before. Um, you know, I forget what the saying is, history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. Um, uh, certainly the relationship is not a positive one now. And so while I'd say it's not the exact same as the Cold War, um, it's it's certainly the lowest point it's been since, since I've worked on these issues. Um, and, um, you know, I think we continue every day, the, the highest levels of the government are focused on how we can maintain, um, you know, stability and openness to some extent in our relationship with Russia while needing to um, work to end this war and and to end Russia's um, destabilizing behavior, malign behavior around the world. Um, so uh, again, you know, the goal is to keep lines of communication open so that we um, have ways to talk to the Russians. We do talk to the Russians still. Um, I talk to the Russian embassy here. Um, <coughs> Um, and uh, so we do maintain those lines of communication, uh, but we don't see um, we don't see a readiness on the Russian side to negotiate in good faith on what's happening on their war in Ukraine at the moment. So the goal is to get them to the point where they are willing to negotiate in good faith. Uh, let me ask a, a question about your personal experience. You've had you've had an uh, uh, incredible professional background dealing with uh, Russia and the former Soviet Union. Uh, you served at the embassy uh, in Moscow from 2017 to, to 2018. And in your bio, you were uh, declared persona non grata. Can you tell us a little bit about that? There must be a, a story there. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, this was in 2018 after the Russians poisoned um, Sergei Skripal in the UK. 
And so as a response to that, um, the US and Western governments um, came together and expelled Russian intelligence officers from their countries. Um, you know, the poisoning of Skripal was a Russian intelligence operation. The Russians had focused on getting their intelligence officers to Western countries. And so th there was a joint response of expelling some of these Russian intel officers. Um, no surprise, in return, the Russians expelled uh, Americans and and uh, people from all of these other Western countries um, that had expelled Russians. Of course, the Russians um, focused on uh, actual diplomats um, because, you know, this is their fear is what are, you know, U.S. diplomats in a way are scarier to them because we are out talking openly to uh, human rights defenders and opposition figures um, and independent media. Uh, so the Russians expelled 60 Americans. Um, actually, they informed us of the expulsions on my birthday, March 29th, which I'm very proud of. I like to think they picked that date, especially. <laughs> um, so uh, there were 60 of us. Um, and in fact, the Russians expelled the entire political section of the U.S. Embassy. And they picked us by name, which I'm proud of. Uh, yeah, they picked everyone in the political section, which is where I was. Um, but, you know, it does seem they chose strategically. They chose political section. They chose the economic section. Um, actually, they, they chose the guy specifically who, does, who did sanctions. They chose some key IT people who kept our computers going. You know, they, they were strategic about how they did it. Um, so unfortunately, you know, unfortunately there have been many PNGs since then. Um, and this actually means that a lot of our folks who have really specialized in this area can no longer go to Russia, which is exactly what the Russians want. So, you know, folks who understand them are not able to go. Um, and, you know, I mentioned our embassy, you know, we had, um, you know, over a thousand people at our mission, uh, you know, when I was there and we had a consulate in St. Petersburg um, and Vladivostok and Yekaterinburg. And uh, unfortunately, the numbers at our embassy now are, you know, somewhere just over a hundred and something people um, quite, quite small um, because the, the Russians aren't letting us send our people there. So. Well, you you uh, you talked about uh, impacting uh, the the open reporting and expression and communication with Russian people. We've seen uh, recently uh, a journalist uh, who was uh, uh, arrested on uh, on charges and, and is being held, uh, and there are other Americans who uh, who are being held. Can you talk a little bit about the the detained American? The uh, I guess the title is wrongfully detained uh, American mm -hmm. citizens. Uh, What's what's the state of play between Washington and Moscow regarding their their situations? Yeah, thank you. I mean, this is the highest priority here um, at the State Department is to um, work on behalf of our of U.S. citizens overseas. And indeed, we do have um, U.S. citizens detained in Russia who are uh, who we've declared wrongfully detained, including Evan Gershkovich from uh, the Wall Street Journal. Um, we we are working all the time we have a um, special envoy uh, for hostage affairs um, 
who is working to try to find ways to get these American citizens released. Um, certainly this is, you know, hearkening back to the Cold War, part of the Soviet playbook. It was part of the Soviet playbook. And this is um, certainly an area where I see some echoes of, um, of our, our past relations with the then Soviet Union. Um, the Russians will use um, any leverage they can get to try to um, gain influence with, with the United States government. Um, and so we are committed to working for the release of these Americans. Um, obviously, we've gotten you know a couple released and uh, not too long ago, in, including Brittany Griner, but there are others uh, that, that we remain focused on. We continue to uh, call on the Russians to provide us with consular access um, which they are required to do, uh, but have not done um, and have continued to uh, block us at various points from gaining access um, to these American citizens. So we, Ambassador Tracy, our ambassador in Moscow, um, has made this her highest priority. And so we will continue to work on it. You, uh, you mentioned your colleague who uh, was responsible for sanctions in the political section uh, <laughs> being a PNG uh, along with you and, and your other uh, colleagues serving in, in Moscow. Can you talk a little bit about the sanctions that have been levied uh, subsequent to the uh, invasion of Ukraine? Uh, it, it seems, you know, we hear in the news uh, the U.S. has imposed sanctions and you, you you kind of get the impression, okay, that's one and done, but apparently there's so many complex layers of interactions that there seems to be an endless supply of things that can be sanctioned. Uh, <laughs> yes. where, where are we now and, and how effective uh, have we been? I understand that the, the focus has been on finance, energy, and, and military technology. Um, what, what's, uh, what's the report card on, on where we are? Yeah. Yeah, sanctions are uh, so complicated. Yes, an endless ability to um, or need to close loopholes and end evasion. Um, so, of course, um, the um, the central objective of our sanctions and our export controls is to uh, limit Russia's ability to support its war um, by reducing Russia's revenues, um, making it harder for Russia to use its remaining resources effectively to support its war effort and um, denying access to critical inputs to Russia's military industry. So this is the goal and we've tried to really focus our sanctions so that it, it targets um, these areas, so that it targets Russia's military, military industrial complex and ability to wage war. Um, you know, I think a lot of people had hoped or thought that as soon as we applied sanctions on Russia, we would just see the collapse of the Russian economy the next day. Um, but, you know, I think I'm not a sanctions expert. Uh, we, we do have them in the department. It's not me. But, um, and you know, especially at Treasury, those are our, our real experts. Um, you know, the goal wasn't to collapse the Russian economy the next day, and, and it remains not the intent. Um, we also continue to have, you know, carve outs for medicine and food and humanitarian um, goods and things like that. Um, uh, but so I would say, you know, I think our actions have been um, successful and they're going to continue to, I think, have more of an effect as time goes on. Uh, we all wish sanctions effects would be instantaneous, um, but that's not that's not how they work. Um, but our actions have isolated Russia from the international financial system. 
um, and mobilized major portions of its sovereign reserves. Um, they put uh, downward pressure on Russia's most important revenue source from energy exports um, and dramatically reduced access to critical materials and technology necessary to supply Russia's military. Um, and we do see, you know, Russia trying to find other sources of components and uh, systems and weapon systems now. Um, uh, we continue to do what we can to close any loopholes, to go after anyone who is violating sanctions, uh, and to put pressure on countries not to uh, provide Russia with such materials um, and to use yeah, sanctions as, as a deterrent um, to countries who might consider doing that. So we continue to work on this, meetings all the time on sanctions, more sanctions will be coming. <laughs> so. The uh, the energy piece is uh, particularly uh, interesting. Uh, apparently, the uh, the Europeans have been uh, very good in uh, cutting back the Nord Stream uh, pipeline uh, before it was attacked um, was uh, was cut off. Uh, but uh, Russia has found uh, other markets for for its. Uh, uh, energy exports. I think uh, John McCain uh, famously called Russia a, a gas station with nuclear weapons, uh, and they're mm -hmm. they're continuing to uh, work with uh, OPEC and others to uh, uh, evade sanctions on on the energy market. Uh, so I, I guess that complicates the situation when other countries are are uh, buying Russian oil on the cheap. Yeah, it's true. I mean, they're a major source of energy resources, um, which which makes this so much harder. But I will say, you know, we've done things that I never imagined we would be able to do as far as decreasing Europe's dependence on, on Russian energy. Um, and so I, I do think that is making a difference and will make a difference. Um, but it's true. I mean, Russia's got other countries right now um, that it looks to. And so that makes it harder, harder for the sanctions to have as much of an immediate effect. But uh, but again, I mean, we've sort of we've taken unprecedented steps. Um, European countries have taken steps we never thought they would to decrease their dependence. And uh, we have been trying to help the Europeans um, to, to take those steps as best as we can. So we're going to we're going to keep working on that also. Let me ask you about the uh, the run up to uh, the invasion and uh, particularly the use of intelligence in uh, public diplomacy. Uh, in advance of the invasion, Secretary Blinken announced to the world that uh, we uh, believed, the United States believed, that Russia was in fact going to invade Ukraine. And it was uh, greeted with skepticism even in Kyiv uh, up until the, the actual day of the invasion, I understand. Um, uh, we've also, earlier this year, uh, publicly disclosed that uh, we knew China was considering sending arms to Russia. Um, is this a departure from uh, normal public dis uh, diplomacy to use more intelligence um, reporting uh, to uh, to uh, inform and uh, and convince allies and and our public uh, of of these kinds of uh, episodes? Yeah, I I do think that it's um a very a very positive um step and that we are doing more of this than we had done previously. Uh you know, when when we started to be able to read um some of this intelligence here, you know, it became clear that, you know, Russia's playbook is to deny and obfuscate and we realized, you know, we 
have some insight into what Russia is doing and what it's going to do next. So by being able to share some of this, we're able to take Russia's playbook away from it. You know, Crimea 2014, Russia claimed, oh, these are not Russians who are invading Crimea. They're not wearing Russian uniforms. We don't know who they are, right? Um, uh, this time, we didn't let things like that happen. We said, you know, we know what Russia is going to do. We know they're going in. We know this is their plan. Um, and so I think we are able to use that both effectively publicly and then effectively with partners and allies. Um, and even though it's true we didn't convince everyone um, of what Russia was going to do, I think we were able to share enough where we at least got to the point where we were able to have those conversations of, okay, well, what if? What if Russia does this? At least, you know, let's talk about what we're going to do. Even you don't think it's likely, but what if? And then what are we going to do? And what are we going to have ready? Um, and that really made a big difference. Of course, you've got to you've got to balance, um, you know, um, trying to protect sources and methods um, uh, at the same time, so that you know we're we're not exposing where we might be getting some information. Um, but I think this time we were really able to work well with together with the intelligence community um, to determine, you know, what would be the most effective to share and how we could use that to then take specific steps to get ready for what we saw coming next. So, and I think, yeah, we're, we're trying to do the same um, in other instances and including with what, you know, with China and Russia, we continue to focus talking to the PRC um, to, 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 you know, explain publicly and to them that, you know, lethal is um, is going to change things and how we approach this situation. Um, and so we're continuing to also try to, again, share with our partners and allies what we see happening and then all go in together and together make the argument of why why P the PRC should stay away from from providing lethal assistance to Russia. Well, it's it's a stark uh, departure from previous uh, situations. I was in the Pentagon in 1990 when Saddam was maneuvering to uh, invade uh, Kuwait, and we had uh, strong indications of what was about to happen, but there was no public release of, uh, of any of that. So um, kudos to, to whoever's decided that intelligence needs to get dusted off and, and uh, put to good use uh, in that regard. We have a question from uh, from Donna Hefner uh, about the uh, U.S. actions uh, immediately um, after intelligence uh, tipped off that uh, Russia was moving towards an invasion. And uh, she asked why the U.S. didn't act immediately to fortify Ukraine um, to, to uh, react uh, that we were reacting instead of acting preemptively. Um, I, I don't know if that has something to do with Kiev, uh, Kiev not uh, believing the, the news. Well, I mean, I guess it depends on your definition of fortify. I, I guess in our view, I right. mean, we had been giving, you know, huge amounts of security assistance to Ukraine since 2014, um, you know, and we... Uh, you know, I remember I was in Ukraine in 2014, and we were arguing, okay, Washington, uh, we need to, like, give, you know, I, I think we said 250 million to Ukraine this year in security assistance. And um, people in Washington laughed and were like, we're never going to give that much to Ukraine, right? And now we're at, you know, I don't even know what number we're at anymore. Um, and so as we've, you know, 
understood, increasingly understood what's what's going on, what Russia's intentions are, what the situation is. We have continued to increase um, security assistance. Of course, at first, you know, we weren't giving lethal. Then we went to lethal, and now, you know, we're we're at things we never thought possible. So we certainly did, um, as a result of that uh, intelligence and before the war, we certainly did increase our um, security assistance to Ukraine. We we went in with um, a lot more than we had planned to try to deter and to get Ukraine ready. Um, was it enough? You know, we, we could always do more. We could always do more. But there there was the attempt. There was a, a big focus on doing both, getting Ukraine security assistance to get it ready if it needed to fight, and at the same time, trying to see if any negotiations could possibly work to stave off what we saw as likely coming. Well, clearly there was a, a great effort uh, prior to the invasion to rally support among NATO allies and uh, and others uh, to realize what was about to happen. Uh, I've got a, a question on uh, China's relation with uh, Russia. Uh, before the invasion, uh, President Putin was in Beijing and met uh, President Xi uh, on the occasion of the Olympics, and they uh, they had a summit and released a statement about their unbreakable bond between Beijing and Moscow. Uh, can you can you tell us what what that looks like? Um, what what the perspective from the Kremlin is to this unbreakable bond? And we have a, a couple of questions on uh, on China. One from uh, Nick McCall, one of our advisory board members. Uh, he he wanted to know what state uh, state perceives as China's interactions and, and uh, ostensible support for Russia and what that portends for the U.S.-China relations. I know you're not the, you're not a China uh, person, but uh, from, from the view of, of Russia, what, what does that mean? And uh, Jan Kreitler uh, asks, um, uh, does China really uh, want to be a, a broker for peace? Uh, what is it up to? Yeah. A couple of questions in there. Yeah, good question. Um, Maybe I'll start with the the last, and I think that'll that'll answer the others as I go. I mean, China. Well, yes. And first, I should say I am not a China expert. Um, so I I I will answer based on my Russia expertise and an attempt to understand China and having spoken with China colleagues here. Um, you know, I think um, at first there was an assumption that China's uh, main desire was for sort of stability, um, both, you know, economic stability and kind of global stability that would allow its, you know, economy to continue to grow. Um, and so I, I heard a lot of people speculating that, you know, China in the end wasn't going to support Putin's war um, because it wants it wants stability. Um, you know, I think China has been much more supportive of Russia's war than some uh, had expected. Um, and, you know, I think that's both in terms of um, what it's been willing to give to Russia for its war and also rhetorically and by um, by visits and statements. Um, you know, on the other hand, you know, we haven't seen China go all in um, and China continues to attempt to present itself as wanting to be a broker of peace. Um, my view would you, would would China would PRC want to be a peace broker? 
of course, a lot of countries, by the way, are wanting to be a peace broker. Um, you know, of course, um, but would it support a peace agreement that would lead Ukraine to being um, sovereign and independent and have long-term stability? I am doubtful of that. Um, I think, you know, it is, um, again, not being a China expert, it does not seem to be in the PRC's interest um, to resolve things in a way that would ultimately not help Russia and would help, um, they would see it as helping the West. Um, I think, you know, Putin and, and she, as far as I can tell, have their common interest is in um, ending what they see as this attempt at a unipolar world with the United States in charge, right? They want a multipolar world and they want to undermine the current system. And so I don't see why it would be in, in Xi's interest, in China's interest to broker uh, a long-term um, agreement that would be, that would sort of confirm Ukraine's territorial integrity and its international borders, and that would ultimately undermine Putin. Um, but, you know, I think there's a desire to not completely, um, you know, poo-poo uh, uh, any country's attempt desire to help broker peace. If, they're, if China is really willing to try to get both sides um, on board with principles that we would agree with, okay. Um, we hadn't seen you know, any communication between China and, and Ukraine um, at a high level until just, uh, was it yesterday or the day before? So I mean, that's at least um, a positive development that there was some communication, but until then, you know, this peace plan, China had only discussed it with one side of the party and that's the aggressor. Um, so I remain quite skeptical um, about any ability for China to really play a role um, as a peace broker. We have a, a, a question about the international coalition that has been assembled and, and clearly uh, NATO is all in. And, and it's uh, interesting that, uh, you know, there's been talk that uh, the invasion was precipitated by NATO's expansion to the uh, the east. Uh, and as a consequence of the invasion, we've, we have uh, one and likely a, a second new member of, of NATO. Uh, but the question is uh, about international coalition building, that it uh, apparently has been a success. Uh, where do we need to go next? And a second uh, piece of the question, what about the pushback within the United States for the ongoing support to the United States? You, you alluded to the large numbers of dollars that are being given, and uh, we, we do have um, some people who are concerned about uh, getting involved in a long, drawn-out uh, episode there. Yep. Yeah, definitely. I mean, both both are true. We need to, I think, focus both internationally and within the U.S. Um, to, to make sure that we are internationally continuing to strengthen our coalition's partnerships, um, that we're continuing to share information, um, that we um, continue to make clear that this this is, you know, this is ultimately Ukraine's uh, war. It's for Ukraine to decide how it ends. Nothing, you know, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine um, is the slogan we go back to all the time. And so, um, you know, where to go for here? I mean, I think we need to um, finish our NATO um, uh, enlargement um, with our with our two new members. We need to finalize that, and we need to. Um, 
We need to continue. I mean, we've got we've got challenges, of course, around the world and even, you know, uh, within Europe. And certainly uh, Turkey remains a, a challenge, sometimes very helpful, sometimes a challenge. That's a very complicated relationship that I won't pretend to be an expert on. You know, Hungary obviously continues to be um, a challenge on some of these issues. I think we need to keep working at that, trying to bring them on board with um with what we want to do in supporting Ukraine and uh, continuing to pressure Russia. And then domestically, continuing to work with the Hill. We, uh, My colleague next door is actually out on uh, at Capitol Hill right now talking um, with uh, both the Congress and the Senate and, and both Democrats and Republicans to try to ensure that we're communicating, that we're explaining what our goals are at state, that we're listening to um, Congress's views and what they think we should be doing, that we're um, telling them what our next steps are, how we plan to use money that they, of course, uh, are in charge of ultimately. And so I think that relationship between the executive branch and, and Congress also really remains critical. Well, uh, let me turn to uh, a, a uh, news story uh, a couple of months ago, uh, earlier this year, the International Criminal Court uh, issued an arrest warrant for President Putin over the uh, Ukraine war crimes. Uh, uh, how does that complicate uh, bilateral diplomacy? I would argue that this helps overall. Um, uh, you know, it, so accountability to me is the answer of how we don't let this happen again and how we ensure um, that governments and people feel consequences for their actions. So however this war ends, um, you know, we then would need to think about, of course, we will need relations with Russia. The United States needs to have a relationship with Russia, both nuclear powers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if we simply move on one day from the war and, and there is no accountability for what happened, then I think we're much more likely to see something like this happen again. And maybe it's Russia who's the aggressor, or maybe it's another country who has learned the lesson that, yeah, you can wage a war and you can still maintain power and everything will be fine. So, you know, it's hard for any one country to sort of say like, well, okay, we're gonna take this big stand against Russia. It's, the United States can do that, but for, for so many other countries, that's really tough. But um, that's why we need accountability. I think we need some way for the international community to hold um, hold accountable the, the, the government and the people who have engaged in this. And so I would say that the international community making it clear that we will hold accountable those who engage in this behavior is ultimately going to be important to um, putting pressure on the Russian government to end what it's doing and to pressuring other governments that might think about this type of action. And I will just say, I mean, I haven't seen any any sort of immediate short-term change in any sort of bilateral interactions. We we maintain channels of communication with the Russians, so. Well, we have uh, time for maybe one or two more questions. Uh, the queue is empty, so uh, get your questions in and I'll remind everyone we're talking with uh, Liz Zentos, the Deputy Director of the Office of Russian Affairs at the United States uh, Department of State, and we appreciate uh, her time today. Uh, Liz, let me uh, ask you uh, a question that, um, 
uh, may concern more Americans than than what's happening in Ukraine is the saber rattling that's been happening since the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Russia threatened threatening to use nuclear weapons, uh, pulling back from the uh, the START uh, treaties. Uh, shooting down American drones over international airspace over the Black Sea. Uh, what's what's your read on uh, the increase of, of tensions on the, the strategic um, military political stage? Yeah. I mean, certainly there are, you know, this is concerning um, to us and, and, and to everyone, the, the fact that there are tensions between the world's two largest nuclear powers are, are high. Um, I will say that I overall have been sort of extremely um, struck by how we've been able to maintain strong support for Ukraine uh, without um, really um, creating a situation where there's um, a direct threat of, you know, U.S.-Russia conflict. Um, throughout, I have felt like we have been able thus far, knock on wood, to manage to strike a, a balance where we're able to support Ukraine and pressure Russia, but it's it's the Ukrainians who are doing the fighting. Um, and that's, I think, been really remarkable um, in how we've managed to do that. Um, certainly a new start, um, extremely disappointing that the Russians um, say that they have uh, pulled out um, of new start and, um, you know, they have said, of course, that they're going to maintain the, their commitment to the central limits or basically the numbers um, of, um, of warheads and launchers that they're, they're able to maintain. So that's positive. We have continued, we have reached out to the Russians uh, repeatedly and continue to do so on the importance of arms control and how we should not be linking uh, nuclear security to anything else um, and how we remain committed uh, to, um, to continuing to maintain our numbers that we've committed to. We have continued to publish our data as we're required to do. And we continue to tell the Russians we're ready, we're ready to meet and um, discuss at any time. Um, and we hope that they will come back to the table. So uh, no indication at this time that they're willing to do so, but I will say we, we are very, very committed to uh, to arms control. Um, again, I think to me the the most effective way of trying to get the Russians back to the table on things like this is actually by making clear that they can't leave New Start and um, think that we're then going to say, "Oh my gosh, let's completely change our policies and give Ukraine to Russia." Um, if you please, please come back to New Start. Like, no, you know, we, you, I think our most effective um, approach to this is to make clear we are ready for communication. We are ready to restart inspections. We remain ready tomorrow to restart inspections, uh, but we are not going to roll over. You've got to come back to the table. It's in your interest, Russia, to do so. Um, and we haven't seen, you know, a change. We haven't seen a, a sudden massive buildup of Russian nukes or something like that. Um, so I think that our our continued communication with them on this remains very important, um, and we're committed to that. We have uh, a question about the ongoing request from Ukraine for military hardware, including what uh, uh, our uh, anonymous attendee. Uh, terms, fancy airplanes. Um, 
it's, it, this, this question uh, supposes that uh, we're doing things piecemeal. Um, where, where are we, uh, uh, how, how are we deciding uh, what to do and when? Through many meetings. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> Interagency uh, task forces. I love meetings. They're my favorite thing. No. Um, yes. Look, it, it, it remains uh, tough to figure all of this out. We have so much of this building and the Pentagon and the NSC uh, looking at this. Um, military experts working with the Ukrainians to determine what we think um, is the um, will be most effective, will be most important uh, for them um, to, you know, maintain the territory they hold and to take more. And so I, I think these conversations are are always ongoing. Um, I can't see that we would ever say 100% no to something at any time. It's it's more of a um, you know, what, what is the most necessary right now to get to the Ukrainians for what they're going to do next. Um, and yes, of course, we've, we've continued to see, um, we've continued to pride more and more as time has gone on and as the war has evolved. And as we've seen the Ukrainians go on the offensive, we've, um, we've shifted, we've shifted what we're providing. Um, we're, you know, focused on air defense now. We're of course focused on munitions. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. F-16s is probably <laughs> what's being referred to. I can't yeah. say no decision has been made, but I'm not, I'm not going to rule out, out anything after uh, having worked on this for so long and seen, you know, obviously so many changes and, and what we are willing to give. So um, here's, yeah. here's a, a quick one from an anonymous admirer who says that uh, the state department seems to be in better shape today uh, in keeping talented people like you uh, on board. And the, the question is, uh, uh, there was an exodus uh, a few years back of things in the workforce stabilized there. Yeah, I think, I think so. But we we need more people. We need more people. Um, yeah, I I think there's. Well, we'll more... we'll connect you to our career panel next next uh, fall. Yes. No. Seriously, that would be amazing. Uh, yeah, no, things definitely feel more more stable. You know, we've had one Secretary of State for a while now and fewer major shifts. And um, I think right now more of a feeling of uh, a little bit of protection, um, you know, hopefully being pulled less in, into politics. Um, that's, you know, for a career bureaucrat, the worst feeling is to to see someone from either political party try to pull you in to to support their side or the other. So um, as much as we can avoid doing that, I think that really uh, gives our State Department more space to be able to maneuver and do what, you know, sort of apolitical career bureaucrats think um, is most effective. So I, I feel less of that now, but I will say, I mean, we are just perpetually short staffed um, you know, and uh, not to say that other agencies are in an amazing place, um, sure. but uh, yeah, we could definitely use more people. I know there is a big hiring push right now, so uh, please do urge Tennesseans to to apply. We just, we just, we just had a career panel in the uh, uh, diplomat in residence in Atlanta. Uh, Sal Hernandez spoke uh, oh, eloquently great. about uh, career opportunities. So there's yes. there's 
we're, we're doing our best here. And, and we have and, internships that are paid now, finally, finally. So if there are university students, um, please urge them to to apply. We're finally, you know, compensating people for their work. For Very good. And, and I'll share that uh, World Affairs Councils share uh, your uh, spirit of uh, nonpartisanship. Let me ask one last question before I ask uh, for your closing comments. And uh, that uh, is similar to the China question, but it deals with India. Uh, India has has been trying to play both sides. Uh, they're, they're getting a lot of energy from, uh, from Russia. Um, there, you know, we have an alliance of, of, of sorts with India through the Quad and, and other relationships that are important, but they seem to be um, sitting on the fence regarding the uh, Ukraine invasion. What uh, what insights, if any, uh, can you share about India's thinking on, on the Ukraine invasion? Yeah, I mean, not an India expert, but I would say they are a top priority when we're thinking about, you know, we think all the time about engaging, you know, fence sitters um, and and other countries who who have not voted with us recently, um, for example, in the UN uh, or who we see engaging in um, continuing to purchase uh, Russian weapons. Um, we continue to just to ensure we're pointing out to them um, the downsides of this, um, what this could mean for their uh, security moving forward. Um, also pointing out to countries um, that perhaps Russian weapons have not performed as well um, as some might have expected, and they might want to think about this when deciding who they buy their weapons from. Um, certainly with India, there's a lot of history there, you know, including uh, from the Cold War um, that, you know, affects um, affects the relationship there and um, that we continue to try to work through. But um, you know, a key a key country um, on this issue and everything else, um, and we'll we'll keep working at it. Okay, uh, that's that's a lot for us to absorb. I'll I'll tell our audience that uh, uh, if they want to uh, hear it all again, we'll have it uh, archived in the video uh, podcast and transcripts on our website. Uh, Liz, any last thoughts you'd like to share? Um. Just to emphasize again, the importance of uh, groups like yours also um, being uh, vocal and, you know, um, helping ensure that all of America understands what's going on so that we can continue to keep up support, um, you know, in this case to support Ukraine and keep the pressure on Russia, but on all the issues this building works on. Um, it, it's so important to, to have people across the US, not just in Washington, who care about this and who are focused on it. And so then that trickles to Congress, which also cares, and then we're able to work together. So, so thank you for what you're doing on this. Well, thank you so much for your time and, and uh, dedicated service. And uh, thanks to your father for uh, exposing you to the <laughs> Cleveland World Affairs Councils. We have uh, some great friends there. Uh, oh, terrific, world, terrific World Affairs Council. All, all the uh, uh, councils uh, work closely together. Uh, yeah. So we're, we're uh, very grateful to you uh, today for your time. I know your, your schedule well, with all those meetings and uh, uh, thinking about the, the future must, uh, must be really uh, a taxing day for you. So we, we appreciate that. And, and better luck on your future birthdays. Uh, that, uh, <laughs> it's a badge of honor, badge of honor. <laughs> Uh, certainly a, 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 a perfect remembrance. Uh, and thank you, uh, everyone, for, for joining us today. Uh, this has been a special episode of uh, the Tennessee World Affairs Council um, uh, 
Global Dialogue, our series in focus, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We've been talking with Liz Zentos. She is Deputy Director of the Office of Russian Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. Again, thank you, Liz, so much for joining us today. That's it uh, for me. I'm Patrick Ryan, President of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. We appreciate you being with us today. And please take a look at our website, tnwac.org, where you can become a member or make a gift to help sustain programs like this. Everyone have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye.